Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. I am so glad that we are together tonight for the Parsha of Shoftim. As well, tonight is August 20th, 2020, and tonight, when it gets dark, will be Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first day of the month of Elul. I have three pieces that I'd like to share with you. The first comes from a shear, a lecture from Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory. If you have the Stone Chumash, you can turn to page 1030. If you don't have it, that's also fine. But if you have the Stone Chumash in the Parish of Shoftim, page 1030, we're going to start with Pusik number Tess. It's actually the last word on the page. It's just the word key, but then we turn to the next page, 1032, and the Pusik says as follows. Again, this is Moshe speaking to the Jewish people, giving the last speeches of his life as they are about to enter the land of Israel. And the Torah says as follows. Ki When you come into the land, that Hashem, that God will give you, do not learn from those immoral acts of the nations that are living there now. Because among the nations that are already there, there are practices of idolatry, the, the idolatry of Molech, the practices of witchcraft and sorcery and um, other kinds of things. These are all abominations to God, but rather, I'm now at the end of Pusik number 12, Ra- I'm sorry, Pusik 13, Yud Gimel, rather, Tamim Tiya Im Hashem Elokecha. Tamim, we would translate it as pure, wholehearted, simple, tamim, be tamim, together with God. So, the Torah is setting up an opposition of the practices of the nations that are already there in Israel. Reject that, don't do that, but rather, tamim, act as a tamim, pure, wholehearted, simple, we'll get to the meaning in a moment. But the passage makes it clear that this, whatever it is, tamim, to be tamim, is a major fundamental statement of how we are to serve God. In fact, this is not the first time in the Torah when we are told to act in this manner, tamim. In fact, we saw this near the beginning of the Torah, God says this is the way that Avraham, our forefather Abraham, is supposed to act. If you want to turn back in the Chumash, in Bereshis to page 72, page 72, chapter 17, Pasuk number 1, Vayihi Avraham ben Tishim Shanah v'seisha Shanim, Avraham was 99 years old, Vayera Hashem el Avraham, 
God appeared to Avram, Vayomre love, and God said to him, Ani kel shakai, I am God your Lord, his halech lefanai, walk before me, the tamim, and be tamim. So Avraham is instructed to act with this characteristic of tamim, and now God is saying the entire Jewish people should act with this characteristic of tamim. Now let's ask the question, what does it mean? Ibn Ezra, famous medieval scholar, writes, it follows the context of the passage with Avraham, our forefather Abraham, because that passage goes on after God says, Heye tamim, be tamim, the passage goes on for God to command Avram in the mitzvah of bris milah, of circumcision. So this is the opening of that passage. And Ibn Ezra says, what does it mean God is saying, be tamim? Ibn Ezra says, shlotishal lama hamila. Don't ask why am I commanding this mitzvah. I mean, listen, it's a painful mitzvah. It's painful for anybody who has ritual circumcision, especially if you're 99 years old. God is saying, I'm going to command you something. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. Don't ask questions. Just do it because I commanded it. Don't ask why I'm, asking, why I'm commanding you. In other words, according to the Ibn Ezra, to be tamim means pure obedience, non-intellectual, don't think about it, don't question it, don't ask, don't hesitate, just do it because I said so. The famous words of the Chavitz Chaim, for the believer, there are no questions. For the non-believer, there are no answers. That's the Ibn Ezra's approach. Be tamim, just do it because I said so. Okay, that's Ibn Ezra. Rambam, Maimonides. It would be hard to imagine an interpretation of the same word that is more completely opposite what Ibn Ezra says. Listen to what the Rambam says. The Rambam works off of the context of the passage in our Parsha. The passage in our Parsha that I read for you, page 1032, God describes the immorality of the nations who are already there, their idolatrist and sorcery and witchcraft. Don't do any of that stuff, but rather tamim. Listen to what the Rambam says. What does it mean to be tamim? Says the Rambam. Yedu b'ra'ayos b'ruros shekal elu hadvarim she'asra Torah enam divrei chachma it means to know with the utmost clarity of knowledge that all of those prohibited actions, all of those activities prohibited by the Torah are not matters of wisdom, but they are falsehood by which the gullible are misled and for the sake of which they abandon all the ways of truth. So investigate. Go through an intellectual, philosophical review 
of those activities that God prohibits so that you will intellectually, philosophically understand the utter falseness of those activities and why it is that God prohibits them. The Rambam is saying exactly the opposite of Ibn Ezra. The Rambam is saying, God says, what I want you to do is be tamim, investigate, intellectualize, analyze why these activities are prohibited. Completely different answer. Then we have Ramban, Nachmanides, who lived a little bit later than Maimonides. The Ramban has a third, completely different understanding of the same term. Ramban says, Sheniyache levavenu elav v'namin shehu levado osekol we must develop an all-embracing relationship with God, a union with God, so that we are close, so that we are spiritually connected. To be tamim means to have a spiritual connection to God. Not obedience, not intellectual, but spiritual. So, okay, three opinions. One opinion is obedience, one opinion is analytic. A third opinion is spiritual. The question I have is, which one is right? How are we supposed to know how to fulfill this requirement of being tummim when there are three completely different opinions about what it means? How do we do it? Explains Ravar Lichtenstein. The point is, there are at least three equally valid paths to God. Now, each of us may be drawn to one path or the other, but we may not look down on those following a different path. And the truth is, if you think about this for a moment, you can usually often notice these different types of Jewish people. There are people who personify a simple, obedient relationship with God. God said it, I do it. That's all I need to know. There are others who take an analytic, intellectual approach. I want to understand it. I want to analyze it. And there are others that we can recognize that just feel this spiritual connection to God. The important point for us is for us to understand that there is more than one legitimate way to serve God. At least this far, we must recognize a pluralism of paths in serving God. And the truth is, even within each of us, we would do well to try to understand what path we are drawn to and also to widen our experience to try to develop the other approaches that we may be able to benefit from. It's a good idea to think about which of these three models you find yourself drawn to and then to try consciously to appreciate one or two of the other approaches. 
beginning tonight, Rosh Chodesh Elul, the beginning, the first day of the month of Elul, we start our annual approach towards God. And all of us need to work on this goal. It speaks to us tonight to be Tamim with God. It's a good idea to develop all of the ways that we are able to come closer to God. Obedience, analytic, spiritual. But let me finally share my grandfather's approach. It's different from Ibn Ezra and the Rambam and the Ramban, but it overlaps a little bit. My grandfather used to quote this line often. Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. I want to move to another subject. It's actually the next page in the Chumash. Again, if you're in the Stone Chumash, page 1034. This is another mitzvah that is included in our parsha of Shoftim. We have discussed this in a different context before. Page 1034 in the Stone Chumash. Pasuk number Beis, number 2. Shalosh Arim Tavdilach Basok Artsacha Asher Shamalakona Sainakalarishta. You shall designate three cities in the land that I have promised to you, God has promised to you that you're going into the land of Israel. Actually, within the Talmud we learn it's actually not just three, it's actually a total of forty-nine because there are other cities that were added, added to this, but these are cities of refuge. Ir Miklat, cities of refuge. And it works like this. This is what happens when a person commits an act that kills someone else, but it was negligent or accidental. A person who was convicted of such a crime, of what we would call involuntary manslaughter, causing someone's death by an accident or through negligence. They are required and sentenced to go into Gullus, to go into exile to an Ir Miklat, to a city of sanctuary. And they have to stay there for a certain amount of time. <coughs> rabbis in the Talmud explain that the purpose of this is that a person who committed this act by accident or through negligence, they didn't hate the person, they didn't want to kill this person, but they were negligent, they were not careful, and they are responsible for that. So the sentence that they are given is that we require them to relocate to a new physical place, to a different city, and they have to stay there for a certain amount of time. And the rabbis in the Talmud explain that these cities were intended to be a positive environment. 
an environment where a person would be able to rehabilitate themselves, would learn to be more careful and more cautious and more uh, appreciative of the gift of life. And a person was put into this positive environment with positive role models in order to be able to rehabilitate themselves, to improve, to change. We do not have these cities of refuge today. But a number of our commentators call on us to build our own private city of refuge within ourselves, not in space, but in time. To allocate one month a year, the month of Elul, to enter into a different realm as if in this month we have exiled ourselves from our regular daily routine into a different realm, a realm in which we can change, in which we can improve, in which we can resolve to begin anew on Rosh Hashanah. Now, I want to share with you an insight from Sivan Rahav Meir about one aspect of this process that is common both to geographically relocating, being exiled to another city to live, and adapting ourselves to a different realm during this month of preparing for the High Holidays. As you may know, this past year, Sivan Rahab Meir relocated herself and her family to North America. She was actually a guest speaker in Montreal one weekend and many other places across North America. And she says that one of the things that she experienced moving from one place to another is a lesson of humility. Because when you move to a different place, it is a severe blow to your ego. And she tells the following story. Okay, she's a very educated, intelligent woman, professional in Israel. She's in New York, living there for the first time. And she had to take a train from Manhattan somewhere else. So there was one of the teachers at Yeshiva University, Rabbi Halpern, who went with her to the train station to help to make sure that she would figure out how to get from where she, from where she was to where she needed to go. It's the first time she was ever there. And she tells this story that she was unable to buy a ticket. She went to the machine. It wouldn't take her credit card. She had to go to a cashier. First, she gave the cashier a bill. It was not enough money. Then she gave the cashier another bill. It was too, too much money. And she just, she couldn't figure it out. Luckily, this Rabbi Halpern was there to help her. But she thinks to herself, she's a professional person. She's an intelligent person. In Israel, 
She can take the train. She can speak to the cashier. She can take care of herself. She pays her bills. She takes care. She does everything she needs to do. And all of a sudden, she moves to a new place and she can't do the simplest things. When you move to a new place, everything makes you feel smaller. You're not as strong as you thought. And she reflects that that is an essential aspect to this punishment of Ir Miklat. We tell this person, you've been living here in your home. You have to go live somewhere else in order to rehabilitate, rehabilitate yourself. Part of rehabilitating yourself is to be in a new environment where you don't know how things work, where you don't know your way around, where your ego is cut down. And that's a necessary part of making changes in your life. To be able to make a change, you have to recognize, I don't know everything. I'm not doing everything right already. I have things to learn. A person must reduce their ego in order to make changes in their life. While they were waiting for the, waiting for the train, Rabbi Halpern told Sivan the following story. I've shared this with some of you before. It's an amazing story about Rabbi Norman Lamb of blessed memory. He recently passed away. And for many years, he was the president of Yeshiva University. And he used to tell the following story about himself, about his first day on the job at Yeshiva University. On his first day working there, he went to the cafeteria for lunch and he selected his food, he put it on the tray, and he went to the cashier to pay for his meal. The cashier wanted to know what to charge him for his meal, so she asked him, are you faculty? He said, no, I'm not faculty. She said, are you a student? He said, no, I'm not a student. She said, are you a visitor? <laughs> he said, no, I'm not a visitor. So the cashier said to him, I guess you're a nobody. And Rabbi Lamb said, precisely, I'm a nobody. A necessary condition for a new chapter of life for making changes in life is to reduce our ego. You have to be willing to say, maybe I don't know. Maybe I am not right the way I'm going. And we need to use these days leading up to Rosh Hashanah as if we are a foreigner, an immigrant, and we don't know where to go. And we are willing to make changes to get to the right place. I want to share with you one last piece about yet another fascinating mitzvah in our Parsha. And now I'm on page 1038. It's the beginning of chapter number 20. 
The Torah talks about the laws concerning warfare, going to war. The Torah says as follows, When you go to war against your foe and you see their armies and their weapons and their armaments and they appear to you to be much greater and stronger than you, don't be afraid. Because God is with you. You don't need to be afraid. Nonetheless, before entering the battlefield, there would be an officer who would address the troops. And he would say as follows, <coughs> The officers would address the soldiers before going into battle and they would say, is there anyone here who built a new house, a new home, but you have not yet lived in it? Go home. You're exempt. And if there is anyone here among you who planted a new vineyard, but you did not yet get to harvest its crops for the first time, you're exempt from the army. Go home. Is there someone here who has become engaged to be married, but you have not yet married? You're exempt. Go home. Fascinating. So there are categories of exemption from serving in the military. Now listen. And the officers would continue to speak to the soldiers. And they would say, If there is anyone among you who is afraid and of weak heart, you're exempt. Go home. Fascinating. What does it mean, a person who is afraid? So the Talmud records a dispute. Rabbi Akiva says, A person's afraid. It's not so hard to understand. You see an enemy with weapons and arms and, the, and, you're, and you're facing them and you're frightened. If you're afraid, go home. That's what Rabbi Akiva says. Rabbi Yossi Aglili disagrees. He has a completely different understanding of this. And he says, it refers to a person who is afraid, a person who is afraid because he has sinned. And because he has sinned, he is worried that he will not have the merits to be successful in battle and he may be killed. Now, listen carefully. The structure of this passage is interesting because there are three exemptions. A person who built a new home, a person who planted a vineyard, a person who was engaged to be married. Each one of those is successive, one after the other. 
Then for the fourth category, the Torah says, and the officers added one more category. Why is this fourth category referred to differently than the first three? Rabbi Yossi Aglili says, the first three categories of exemption, their cover. Meaning as follows. A person who did a sin, and because of that sin he's worried he may not be able to survive this battle. He should go home. But if you just make an announcement, whoever sinned and is afraid because of their sin should go home, it'll be very embarrassing. Because whoever goes home, everyone will see that they're a sinner. So the Torah commands three exact categories of exemption first. And then this fourth category. So, at the end of the speech, a few people are going to get up and they're going to go home. One looking at those people returning will not know into which category they fall. So the person who is leaving because he has sinned will not be embarrassed that everyone knows why he is going home. Okay. First, before we go any further, that's a really important lesson. We don't want to embarrass someone even when they have sinned in a way that causes them to have to be exempted from the battle. We still don't want to embarrass somebody. What an important lesson in sensitivity the Torah is teaching us. Okay, but let's look at this further. What kind of a sin could a person do that is so terrible that they are worried they will not survive the battle. So the Talmud gives an answer. And the answer is fascinating. First, a little bit of an introduction. As I'm sure you may be familiar, there is a mitzvah that is followed by Jewish men every weekday morning during prayers of tefillin. We put on tefillin. Tefillin are black leather boxes there's one that we wrap on our arm, the other that we wrap on our head. Inside there are parchments with passages from the Torah. And we put on tefillin every weekday morning. The word tefillin is plural because there are two. Shel Yad, the one that goes on our arm, and Shel Rosh, the one that goes on our head. I'm pointing to my right arm because I'm left-handed. So I put on tefillin on my right arm. Men who are right-handed put tefillin on their left arms. I just didn't want you to think I'm pointing the wrong direction. Okay, so they're called tefillin, which is the word that we're all familiar with, but that's the plural because they're, it's a set, it's a pair. Each one by itself is called a tefillah. Yes, I understand that's the same word as prayer. It may be a little confusing that the same word is being used in a different context because here it refers to an object. So, if we refer to one, it's called a tefillah. There's a tefillah for our arm and a tefillah for our head. Together, it's a pair of tefillin. There is a rule when we put on tefillin that we put on the shalyad on our arm first and then immediately, without interrupting, without even speaking in between, we put on the shalrosh on our head. That's the procedure. Now listen to the Talmud. The Talmud says, 
what kind of a sin could be so terrible that it would be a reason for a person to be afraid they're not going to survive a battle and they're going to be exempted from service and they go home? Says the Talmud, Sach bein tfila litfila. If a person speaks between putting on the tefillin on our arm and putting on the tefillin on our head, a person says a few words, Averihi biyado. That's a sin. And that is a sin worthy of being exempted from battle. Come on. That's the sin. You can't come up with anything more serious than that. I mean, okay, fine. You spoke. You're, you're putting on tefillin. You said a few words between the this part of the tefillin and that part of the tefillin. That's such a serious sin? What's going on here? So I want to share with you an answer that I heard from Rabbi J.J. Schachter last year. It's an incredible answer. The tefillin shalyad, the tefillin that we put on our arm, represents binding our arm, our action, to serving God. The tefillin on our head represents binding our head, our mind, to serving God. Tefillin, plural, means that we bind our actions and our mind, our thoughts, together to serving God. A person who speaks between the arm and the head a person who separates those two metaphorically seems to be making the statement that I could serve God just through my actions, without thinking, without analyzing, without appreciating what it means, what it signifies, what it is supposed to do to me. I could serve God just with my arm. Or, a person may think to themselves, I can serve God just with my mind. I can contemplate, I can philosophize, I can analyze, I don't have to actually have to do anything. Both of those sentiments are terribly mistaken and they lead to approaches to God that are faulty, that are insufficient. The metaphoric understanding of this requirement not to speak between putting on the tefillin on our arm and putting them on our head is to understand that we need action and mind together. We need to think about why we're doing something and what it means and how it affects me as we perform the actions with our arms. Either without the other is insufficient. Tonight, as I mentioned, is Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first day of the month of Elul. We enter tonight the period of preparing for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And as we prepare, in the ways that I spoke about earlier and in other ways, as we prepare spiritually for Rosh Hashanah, we must understand this lesson, that God wants our actions 
and our thoughts. We need to harness the arm and the head together in order to serve God. That's the reason that separating them leads to a bifurcation that is an insufficient service of God. And a person who does that may not feel secure that they will emerge from battle victorious. We need to try our best, especially in this month, that we merge the two together so that we come before God on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur with our arm, our actions, and our head, our mind, our thoughts bound together in service to God. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.